2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I am joined by Ulash Inje, author of the recently published Colonial Capitalism and the Dilemmas of Liberalism. Colonial Capitalism was published by Oxford University Press in 2018, Ulash takes up the complex question or analysis of the intersection of economics and politics, or rather the development of Western capitalism and the development of modern liberalism, especially in context of Great Britain and its imperial experience. This is a fascinating analysis, multifaceted, and extremely well-researched and assessed. But I will let Ulaş get into more of the details of his book and thesis as we proceed. First, I would like to introduce Ulaş Inja and ask him to tell us a bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hello,
1: Ulaş. Hello, Lily. Thank you for having me. Sure.
2: Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I I was... um... I set out to study political science with the intention of joining the foreign service, but I got um, out begot- by the the, the siren calls of academia. As soon as I uh, sort of started studying political science, branched out of sociology, um, got back into political science at the level of the PhD, and um, completed my studies at Cornell um, to be. Perfectly honest, I did not intend to study the British Empire, political economy, or history of political thought when I joined Cornell. Of course Um, not. No, of course not. Uh, My intention was to continue my studies into uh, Frankfurt School and critical theory in particular, the work of Walter Benjamin. And uh, this project came out from the sort of fortuitous coincidence, as if coincidences were non-fortuitous, of of reading three things at once. I was reading... um, Bayamine, um, Locke and Silvia Federici um around the same week. And then I was struck by the uncanny resonance between um certain passages in the second treatise and some of the history of primitive accumulation um that Silvia Federici um outlines in her book. And then I noticed that something was going on and and and, and one of the sparks beyond behind this project was a speech by a former World Bank president, um, John Wolfenson, who also incidentally the co-author of Amartya Sen, um, about um, development and development knowledge being global commons, but best cultivated and disseminated by a set of specialized agents and institutions, which was, as I said, uncannily resonant with Locke's pronouncements about the world being, um, the earth being, and the common inheritance of mankind, but it being given in particular to the industrious and the rational. So this this interplay between the the uh, the, the universal um, and the particular, if you will. And I noticed in short order that this question could not be studied independent of the history of capitalism. So this was basically the rabbit that I chased down the hole. Um, I was praying that I wouldn't have to write about this, but, you know, um, I did go down the rabbit hole and um, out of that hole, this book um, has emerged. And uh, in the course of reading more about Locke, and Locke is a gift that keeps giving when it comes to histories of colonialism and and political thought, um, I noticed that The existing literature was characterized by a striking dearth of attention to matters of political economy and then history of capitalism, with a few exceptions, of course. And that was the principal animus, if you will, that um, drove me to dig deeper into the history of capitalism in the imperial context. And um i I should be able to tell a few that little more about about this about the uh so the, the framing of colonial capitalism in a bit, but um that was in a, the, 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 to uh to to return to the, the the main intervention of the book that was the main animus um to uh materialize or rematerialize the relationship between political theory and empire and more specifically liberalism and empire. By demonstrating how this relationship um, has been structurally mediated by um, capitalism. Um, but accounting for that mediation requires a self conscious theory of capitalism and not just a descriptive history. And that is um, where I turn to histories of and then theories of primitive accumulation of capital, especially in the colonial context to, um, if you will, reconstruct and theorize the imperial contexts in which um, historical texts and particular texts associated with liberalism have been situated. So, and in the the, the course of this, uh, this this research, I retrospectively realized that I was basically writing about the three conceptual hinges of property exchange and labor that connected the history of liberalism as a political language and history of capitalism as a socioeconomic formation um, that has been global and colonial in scope since its inception.
2: Yeah, and you do a really great job of laying out that that sort of Three components, and you have them in context of three different continental spaces um, that you discuss in the in the book as well. But I'd love for you to sort of delve into the thesis of the book, which, as you sort of talk through it in the introduction, you 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 emphasize the brutality of the establishment of capitalism um, in context, also of. The sort of empirical reach of of the British state, um, and at the same time the emphasis on the freedom of the newly established liberal state, um, and this duality is very much in tension. And your unpacking of these ideas um, and the systems that are growing and flourishing. Uh, during this period, can you explain a bit about this broad thesis that you're undertaking, um, particularly with the emphasis on understanding empire, capitalism, and liberal thought?
1: So the more specific intervention of the book as it concerns liberalism and empire, and this is a uh, growing, um, if somewhat recently sort of – it's a growing literature that has somehow, that is somewhat recently plateaued or slowed down, but um, nonetheless, um, it is kind of a small cottage industry of its own. So the the principal intervention is in that field, and um, it offers a different account of British imperial ideology, and, and the, in particular, liberal imperialism of of Britain, and um, it argues that what really mattered, if you will, for the construction of a liberal self-image for the British Empire as the Empire of Liberty um, was the work of liberal intellectuals of empire, of the, or middle-class liberal intellectuals of empire like Locke, Burke, and Wakefield, um, who both expressed and navigated this contradiction between an increasingly liberal conception and imagination of commercial relations in Britain or commercial capitalist relations in Britain, um, and the coercive extra economic and non-market forms of of um, transformation and 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 modalities of labor control and property um, relations that typify the British Empire as a whole. So it's this contradiction, if you will, between the liberal self image of capitalism and its illiberal um, genealogy, which has been uh, acknowledged by recent histories of new capitalism or new histories of capitalism. So that's the puzzle, if you will, that the book sets out. And this is not a new puzzle, obviously. You know, The, the, the tension between the illiberalism of empire and um, its liberal mission has, has been um, explored by many political like, theorists, anthropologists, post-colonial theorists, and so on and so forth. Um, But those histories, as I mentioned in the book, have been mostly um, dematerialized. And then this is, I think, a a, a function of the cultural and linguistic turns that um, have stamped post-colonial theory and intellectual history over the past 30 years or so that have also marked the uh, the engagement with liberalism and empire. So uh, what I do in the book is to shift the focus from Preoccupation with uh, the representations and identities of the colonizer and the colonized, which is usually framed in the existing literature as a matter of universals—you know, the universal claims of liberalism—and the, uh, the the cultural particularities of of the colonized. So, shifting the focus from that preoccupation of politics of universalism um, to uh, the the. The problem of the illiberalism of capitalism, that is that that from a preoccupation with who the colonized are to what the colonizers do as itself a a colonial anomaly, if you will, or or an aberration that had to be justified at the bar of um, liberal political theory or increasingly liberal understanding of Britain's um, empire, Britain's polity. So, um, the the book argues that this the uh, the, the maintenance of the liberal self image of the British Empire, which purportedly distinguished it from, for instance, the agrarian absolutism of France or the feudal imperialism of Spain, that is, its commercial, Pacific, free, you know, what David Armitage called commercial Protestant, maritime, and free character. Um, I th- that I, I argue that this image. Um, This construction and maintenance of this image owed a great deal to the work of uh, middle class or medium level intellectuals like um, Blanc, Burke and Wakefield, who were actively involved in the affairs of the empire, who both acknowledged the problem of illiberality, however obliquely, um, but at the same time tried to navigate this problem, this ideological problem, by um, casting this illiberality as either incidental to or deviation from the essentially liberal image of the British Empire. So, you know, so the, and, and, and the, the particularly um, revealing example of this is my discussion of Burke's castigation of the, uh, the East India Company Corps, um, who he did not um, uh, refrain from, from um, characterizing as the dregs of humanity and so on and so forth, but at the same time um, held that the these these, uh, these these agents of the company were um, about a bunch of corrupt um, and 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 unruly un- ungovernable agents at the frontiers and that had nothing to do with the commercial essence if you will of the British Empire and that a truly um, commercial relationship could be established between Britain and its conquered Indian provinces so here that we have a in, if you will, an acknowledgement of the problem and not its denial, but its disavowal through um, elaborate narratives and and discursive theoretical innovations and, and, and maneuvers that distantiate, that cordon off, if you will, the essence, the, the commercial liberal essence of British commercial capitalism from the, um, the, from the bondage, from the extraction, from the rapacious exploitation um, through which... Land and labor were incorporated into circuits of British capital, so that's the more, if you will um, specific intervention of the book and the the field of political theory and in particular um, of, of liberal theory in the context of empire
2: and and you you sort of sketch out the the sort of wall as you i think sort of acknowledge it um, between the liberal thought rule of law, representative government, ethical pluralism, and subjective rights that are sort of the hallmarks of liberalism. And then on the opposite side, what was going on um, with regard to the practices of domination, foreign rule, um, you know, sort of abject power, coercion, exclusion and disenfranchisement, that these are the tensions that, as you sort of talk about in terms of the thinkers, Locke, Burke, and Wakefield are kind of um, massaging um, the understanding of those of, the, of this sort of distinction. Um, but you also note that um, Smith, Adam Smith, and Hume, are in a somewhat different camp um with regard to their thinking and their approach to some of these tensions can you speak to that a bit
1: maybe i could speak about that towards the end of our talk because that is the second project Um, actually this is not a bad moment to maybe um widen the aperture and speak a little more about the broader framing of the projects of the theoretical framework. Absolutely. Through which um, I try to offer a new, not just a new reading of Lockberg and Wakefield, but more generally um, what is kind of the aspiration or the vanishing point of this book and the current book that I'm working on. That is a kind of a new social history of political thought um, that is imperial in scope. Now um, when Confronted by most historians and intellectual historians that whether my um, reading of Locke, Burke, and Wakefield is true to their intentions and the the linguistic context in which they wrote, uh, my answer is usually that this book is not about Locke, Burke, or Wakefield. This is about the relationship between liberalism, capitalism, and empire, and the contradictory and constitutive relationship between the three. so to put it somewhat bluntly, <laughs> and perhaps, um, it is not my contention that liberalism existed independent or prior to capitalism and you know, it came into conflict with the violent history of capitalism as an exogenous entity, but it, it, as a political language, it developed in and through the history of capitalism. So in other words, I don't um, examine liberalism just as a political language, but also as an, an ideology of capitalism. And the way um, I I theorize and formulate this is that uh, primitive accumulation as this coercive, non-economic or extra-economic coercive process that institutes the background conditions of capitalism um, also gives rise to the institutional mainstays of liberalism, that is private property, market exchange and free labor by obliterating or subordinating alternative forms um, or contending forms of organizing property exchange and work. Now the point to emphasize, and this is something that I will come back to when I talk about Human Smith, um, that these three institutions, that is private property, market exchange, and free labor, are in no way the only or even the primary forms of organizing the accumulation of capital as a planetary system. Because as you know has been um more recently um written and 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 um uh, examined, um, capitalism, from its dawn to our present moment, has always been a variegated totality. Always been racialized. Always been gendered. It's been a heterogeneous um, totality of of social and legal forms, which proceeds by so not so much a universalization of a particular unique form or singular form, but through sort of globalization and striation of of multiple forms. But this liberal conception of capitalism that sees it as a essentially market formation that is based on uh, juridical equality and, and contractual freedom. I call these the primal norms of liberalism. Uh, The juridical equality and contractual freedom. This rests on isolating these three forms of private property, market exchange, and and legally free labor, and the principles of freedom and equality, market freedoms and equalities that they represent as the defining feature of capitalism, while relegating other modes of appropriating resources or controlling labor, um, especially when they are hyper exploitative or overtly violent violent and coercive as anomalies or aberrations that can be realigned and ought to be realigned by the logic, uh, the, the 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 logic of private property and market freedoms. So um this is basically the other uh, the broader framing of uh of, of of this contradiction between liberalism and capitalism. You know, but there's also co-constitution between these these two um in the sense that uh the as I said the Again, to put it bluntly, liberal norms of, of market freedoms, there's the contractual freedom and juridical equality, um, have their conditions of possibility in the social transformations associated with the rise of capitalism. But at the same time, um, this essentially liberal conception of capitalism, or put in the, in terms of ideology critique... The necessary misrecognition of capitalism as an essentially liberal market formation is also what authorizes um, renewed uh, waves or acts of primitive accumulation. Uh, so the, uh, the and in the imperial context, it uh, manifests itself as the uh, the self-assurance of the political and intellectual classes of Britain that their empire is liberal at heart. It's commercial. It's maritime. Um, and it's not like the the, uh, the 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 Spanish or the French or the Dutch um notwithstanding you know en- engagement in slave trade or um settler colonialism or commercial extortion um in the, uh, the the Indian Ocean and so on and so forth so there is in this sense a kind of a, uh, uh, a mutual or, or reciprocal relationship or co-constitutive although albeit contradictory relationship between liberalism and capitalism. And it is this contradiction that stands in need of um, disavowal or or navigation, negotiation or containment. And this is where the the, the middle class intellectuals of empire like Locke, Burke and Wakefield um, come into the picture.
2: And in this this context, because you do uh, sort of discuss a lot the judicial equality and contractual freedom um as the linchpins, as you say, of the sort of understanding that's growing during this time. Can you explain a bit what those terms mean in context?
1: Uh-huh. That's a great question. Thank you. Well, um obviously this is a construct, And right? So it's it's not that Lockberg and Wakefield go about um openly uh, or the, 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 the expressing their their um position in formulaic terms, well, we're in favor of juridical equality and, 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 and contractual freedom. But um, these these norms, these primal norms, although they cannot be um, observed as such or eo nomine in, in, in any particular historical text, they are recognizable um, in the different political languages in which these three figures wrote. I mean, Locke wrote in the language of natural jurisprudence, for instance. Um, and one can discern um the, the commitment to these norms in his natural jurisprudential language likewise um although Burke um used to the language of ancient constitutionalism when you r- look at his political economic writings you likewise see an endorsement of um juridical equality and contractual freedom as the other uh, defining feature of um the british uh economy and then the economic organization. And finally, Wakefield, he himself is a Benthamite, a philosophical radical and a positivist. So in that sense, it's quite different from the other two. But nonetheless, his political economy likewise betrays a, um, a that foundational commitment to these norms. So in other words, the, the reason I call them the primal norms is because um, they animate and they structure um, the more historically specific uh, Mode of argumentation couched in these these um, diverse languages, but nonetheless, um, are uh, is recognizable across these different contexts and political languages. And I think there's a reason why that is the case, because um, all these three thinkers are writing about commercial society, A commercial society is one in which the basic mode of sociality, if you will, the glue or the building block of 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 um, of sociality itself is uh, superficial yet reiterated relations of exchange between property holders. So in and, other words, so yes. Go ahead. And um, in that sense, these two principles um, are foundational principles of commercial society as a uh, social formation. And, and then this, this is where we resort to social theory really and step away from intellectual history as such. Um, and that provides a guiding thread for looking for 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 um, investigating and, and identifying, delineating the um, the specific expressions of the uh, these, these foundation principles of a commercial capitalist economy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And that was what I wanted to sort of get at a little bit next in terms of the, the title of your book and uh, really a lot about the discussion within the book is this concept of colonial capitalism um, and and you talk uh, and you just sort of mentioned the critical social theory and the colonial political economy we also have this you know broad political theorists so can you position and explain colonial capitalism in context of sort of this multifaceted sort of understanding,
1: sure, so in a sense well in in a recent um talk, I think it was in a talk, um Robin Kelly said that racial capitalism is actually a tautology, that there's never been a non racial capitalism, that it's not a type of capitalism The same can be said of colonial capitalism i mean i i I chose the other term colonial capitalism to emphasize. Please enter if you will um, histories of capitalism away from Europe and to draw attention to the global inceptions and colonial genealogies of this of the social formation but um historically capitalism has been global and colonial or imperial in its constitution in um, both in historical terms in the sense that um, the conditions of um, capital accumulation in Europe even um, were resided beyond the continent so it was the capitalism was born as a global um, network an archipelago of accumulation rather than a social system or socio-economic system that was first born in europe and then exported the rest of the world so for instance The role of the colonies in the history of capitalism was not simply one of resource extraction. And, you know, recent, some of the other more influential, if you will, mainstream work like Ken Pomeranz's Great Divergence has credited colonialism with enabling Europeans to overcome resource bottlenecks. But I think there's more at stake um, because colonial spaces were um, also spaces of experimentation with new forms of labor control and productivity and efficiency. Um, new forms of appropriation of, of of natural resources and new forms of exchange that, in you know, in certain respects, were too brutal to be experimented with even in Europe. And part of it has to do with, as I said, the imperial constitution of the uh, the global order within which capitalism was born, which um, positioned colonies beyond the um, the so the so-called law of nations or the use publicum europeum. Um, that delimited the use of of coercion or or of force of violence in matters of appropriation, distribution, and exploitation. So, in that sense, um, formation of of a world market, um, the the uh, the experimentation with organized labor um, and forms of pure market exchange, a commercial exchange that is unmoored from other forms of social ob- other, other social obligations. Um, or embeddedness were made possible by, um, by the, uh, the, this exceptional, if you will, for lack of a better term, I don't like this term, but the exceptional status of the colonies as um, zones of legal indeterminacy, if you will. So in that sense, um, the incorporation of the Indian Ocean through militarized trading, settler colonialism in America, uh, slavery in the Caribbean, later forms of indenture, Later forms of settler colonialism in Australia, and New Zealand, and for the attendant forms of settler capitalism. These are all um, episodes, if you will, constitutive episode or constituent moments of the birth of or the rise of capitalism as a global system. Um, in that sense, I emphasise the colonial dimension, um, both to sort of underscore this 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 uh, imperial constitution, but also. Um, because the the coercion that posed an ideological problem for the liberal self-image of capitalism, especially as expressed in British political economy, that unfolded more openly, more brazenly, more blatantly in the colonies. Of course, there was primitive accumulation in the British Isles. There was enclosures, highland Highland clearances, vagrancy laws, all the stuff that Marx and, and, and Marxian historians have written about um, – but in England there was a common um law um, in and through which these these such coercion could be deemed um illegal or against the law of the land, could be resisted, negotiated, and so on and so forth. But colonies were placed beyond these legal um strictures, and therefore um the the the, the violence of primitive accumulation unfolded much more openly. So you have the statute of artificers. Um, And poor laws in Britain, you have the slave code in Barbados. So – and and, and that is the reason why um, I've I've, I've chosen to stick with the term colonial capitalism, notwithstanding the fact that capitalism – a, it isn't a, a certain redundancy in the antithology.
2: And so uh, you you started to get into the sort of particular um areas that you explore uh this discussion, this um sort of entangled history of liberalism, capitalism, and empire at the three critical moments. Um and you talk about the you know, sort of the land appropriation in the Americas the East India Company, um, and what went on in India, and then the imperial labor in Australasia. Can you talk a little bit about these three sort of, I don't want to say case studies, but the examples that you bring out um, at these critical moments in these different contents um where you have you know sort of this private property, market exchange, free labor um, going on within the sort of rising
1: capitalism. So the uh, the, the property exchange labor triad, um, although I yeah, sure, and that, that triad is constant in all three um, chapters, but one um, one looks at the the, the flashpoint. Of, of debate, as it when it comes to the, the the apprehension, theorization, and justification of colonial capitalism, one sees the, the particular concentration of attention, if you will, on one of these nodes of the triad in in each of these um, points. So, in the 17th century, when when one turns to 17th century European debates on property, um, it is not surprising that the debate is on property because the contact with the new world and the contending claims to American land is the all-consuming preoccupation of um, the, the sovereign fiscal military states or the uh, territorial uh, fiscal military states in Europe and uh, the merchant capital that is allied with them. Um, so you see a uh, the, the, um, an intensification of debate around the question of original title or radical title and original appropriation what is the, the original appropriate what is the, the the basis of legitimate property how do we make non property into property and there we see um, Locke intervening into this into this debate so obviously um, Locke's colonial invest or investment in English colonialism both personal and professional has been documented but what the chapter does is to Show how uh, Locke's theory of private property not only uh, strives to invalidate contending European and Native American claims to landed property in America, but it does so through a particularly co- uh, capitalist optic or with a capitalist motive because um, it is the the uh, the 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 labor theory of value that Locke articulates and and in particular in, in particular weaves around is his notion of money that is that is decisive for, for Locke's adjudication of what is common and what is property. So the 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 argument there is um Locke argues that land in America is 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 private as is, is sorry um common. There's no property because there is no money. And that's kind of a, a departure from the labor Centric theories of, 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 or the interpretations of, of, of this argument. Um, so, and, 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 you know, that, and, and that later on becomes a very good, uh, potent um, ideological weapon in the armature of settler colonialism, way after Locke has, has, the art, I mean, articulated um, this, uh, this, this thesis. Um, in the, the 18th century, the, uh, and by the 18th century, the, the, the the justification of land appropriation is pretty much laid to rest. Um, that lock-in argument carries the day. Um, the the new flashpoint there becomes the uh, the, the problem of trade, um, and that that has to do with the fact that again the European incursion into the Indian Ocean um, accelerates in this period through militarized trading of the joint stock companies, and in particular the British ascendancy in in the subcontinent. Um, there the um, the the political and intellectual preoccupation becomes um, the nature of Britain's trade with um, the East. And there we find Burke's arguments about um, the, the, the true nature, the exact nature of Britain's commercial relationship to India, um, and the defense of the imperial presence, Britain's imperial presence of India. Burke is by no means a, a an anti-imperialist like um, Smith and and Hume have been uh, credited um, as, um, and his adherence to the image of or the the notion of 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 Britain as an essential commercial nation nation that doesn't do imperialism. So it's again as Jim Warfield once felicitously put it, a um, an attempt to imagine an empire without imperialism, if you will. Um, and finally, and uh, when we turn to the 19th century. Uh, settlement of Australia and, and, and New Zealand, um, we find the debate again. This is this is not just about Wakefield or Burke or, 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 or Locke. Um, the debate there rages around what to do with the Englands, uh, the, the Britons, um, poor that have returned from fighting Napoleon and found themselves in the midst of a massive slump, economic slump, and um, become a the uh, a political problem, you know this sort the of social question, if you will. Threatens the British political order, and then the question of what to do with this excess labor. So I mean this is where you have Malthus. This is where you have um, uh, uh, the 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 danger of pre, uh, the overpopulation and worker class militancy, and so on and so forth. And that's when emigration um, uh, becomes a solution, a safety valve. And that coincides with the the abolition of slavery in the British Isles, which further intensifies the problem of labor. And um, Wakefield's uh, theory of systematic colonization provides an answer to both of these problems. That is um, how to redress the imbalance of labor across the British Empire by um, funneling, if you will, the excess labor in Britain into the colonies that are now suffering from a dearth of labor, um, but doing so requires the intervention, the legal and, and administrative intervention of the the British state, um, to maintain the immigrants dispossessed, you know, to, to prevent them from turning into smallholders, um, and that cuts against the grain of the laissez-faire, that you know, the, the orthodox political economy. Um, uh, Upholds at the time, and you know, the the um, prompts Wakefield to weave a, the this series of myths like Locke and Burke before him um, to cast the continuing dispossession of the British emigrants in a kind of liberal mould of a contractual language of a myth of contractual dispossession. So, in other words, um, to sort of sum up the the, the three um, flashpoints or episodes of. Of, um, of liberalism's encounter with, or if you will, emergence through which are the same thing, um, the history of capitalism. We have colonial land appropriations, a problem of private property in the 17th century, and Locke's uh, concern is to uphold private property against the depredations of monarchical prerogative in England, while authorizing the same kind of prerogative in America. In the 18th century, we have the problem of um, incorporating Indian Ocean into British commercial capitalism, but through very non-commercial, if you will, extortion of militaristic terms and how to square that circle. And finally, in the 19th century, we have um, the the, the fervor of abolitionism and the ideal of free labor, um, but at the same time, the need to maintain wage labor, dispossessed wage labor in Britain's colonies to replace, if you will, slave labor um, in the Caribbean and in, um, in, in in settler colonies, establish capitalist agriculture and how to square that with the ideology of free labor. So that's kind of the, the configuration of liberalism, capitalism, and empire in the three episodes that I investigate. And
2: And this is, again, the sort of structure of the book that you go through after an introduction and a sort of an overview, you go through each individual writer, Locke, Burke, and Wakefield, and these critical moments um, with the the triad of property exchange and labor as the kind of areas that you explore and analyze. Um, so now, if you're going to let me, I'm going to ask you about Hume and Smith, because I think this is the right time.
1: <laughs> okay sure so uh, so human Smith no no okay to step back take a step back um, of the three figures that I examined in the book um, Burke is the most controversial in the sense that um, people have debated uh, whether Burke was an imperialist or critic of empire or was a defender of empire or the critic of empire um and in that debate, Smith and Hume make cameo appearances, and they appear even more on un- unadulterated critics of empire. And, you know, when you look at his writings, you do find plenty of evidence that can be mustered to that interpretation. Um, they both advocated, you know, they, they both wrote both openly in their writings and in their correspondence that they would uh, wish, um to see these empires dissolve, that they are sort of follies, uh, that sort of monuments to unreason, as as uh, Mr. Rothschild put it, and so on and so forth. So you know they're they're basically the, the stalwarts of um, the Enlightenment against the empire. You know, to take a shortcut and to use a phrase that um mutu has has coined. Um, and what I do in the second project is to focus on the writings of Hume, Smith, and the I'm currently working to try to navigate my way through some utilitarian um, sort of colonial reform movement for sort of further iterations of this, I'll get to that in a second, Um, to triangulate the same ideological institutional problem from the other end, from the other side of the normative divide. Again, this book, the second book is not about Hume Smith or Bantham or James Mill, but it's again about the constitutive and contradictory relationship between liberalism capitalism and empire now the uh, the the thrust of the, the the current project is to show the limits of an anti-imperial critique that is mounted from the standpoint of a liberal conception of commerce and capital that is Positing commerce and capital and their cosmopolitan promise of peace and prosperity as an alternative to, or an antithesis of, empire, of mercantilism, of the colonial system, and what I do in uh, again situating the writings of these figures in, in, a, in, in an imperial context that is reconstructed through the categories of critical political economy, is to show the show. To to discover or identify those moments where, inside, where where this critique reaches its limit, that where they have the these figures had to fall silent or had to equivocate or had to soft pedal um, certain discussions, and I do this through um, a discussion of Hume on colonial slavery, for instance. And this is uh, an article version of this has come out in, in History of Historical Thought earlier this year, or I mean last year. Why, um, for instance, Hume speaks rather volubly and in length about slavery as an institution in the Greco-Roman world, in feudal Europe, and Asiatic despotism, but almost says nothing about Atlantic colonial slavery, notwithstanding the fact that he was an apprentice. I mean, he worked—not an apprentice. He worked at the the the, the Bristol uh, Merchant's House, and he had. Um, acquaintances, friends who are very active in um the Atlantic uh circuits of slave trade and 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 plantation uh, export-oriented plantation agriculture and so on and uh the thesis there is that well you know if you dig too deep you realize that the commerce um that is posited as the alternative to uh, empire is itself constituted by empire so there's this kind of a constitutive relationship between empire and commerce Um, that functions as a break, if you will, or a limit um, to anti-imperial critique that uh, hangs his hat on a liberal conception of commerce. Um, A similar dynamic I observe um, in Adam Smith's discussion of settler colonialism. So Smith is firebrand when it comes to slavery, when it comes to militarized trading. So his Criticism of the East India Company, or the British slavers, or the planters or plantocracy, um, is nothing short of scathing. Yet, when you look at his treatment of settler colonies, you see a much more ambivalent, to use a, uh, a popular term, ambivalent attitude. Oh, you know, and I don't think that's really ambivalent. I'll get that in a second. Again, um, much more positive attitude. Notwithstanding some of the misgivings of the, you know, the, the initial conquest and so on and so forth. Um and uh as I said, a much more positive attitude towards uh settler colonialism, and I argue that that has to do with the fact that he models his theory of the natural progress of opulence, which is the backbone of his of his analysis of both the four stages theory and and the, the- and the stage of com- his analysis of the commercial stage. On the settler capitalist formation of the Atlantic colonies, of the, the North Atlantic British colonies in particular, but of course that implicates the the the, um, the natural the model of natural progress of opulence in territorial conquest and native dispossession, and uh, when you take a close look at Smith's discussion of of, of these origins of settler colonies, you have um, Invocations of peaceful Greek uh, precedents, if you will, in the image of which he imagines or envisions settler colonies. So, in other words, in both cases, um, I take these limits, these equivocations, these silences, elisions, or disavowals, um, not as intentional um, prevarications or 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 um, bad faith, really. But as inscriptions or expressions of a broader institutional ideological contradiction, so it's not an, an ambivalence of, of an individual thinker and, and, and due to his moral commitments, but rather a, a, a broader historical structural, if you will, contradiction that finds expression in, in, in these figures who, you know, earnestly, really. Um, uh, grapple with 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 um, empire, its violence, and denounce it as unjust and economically destructive, and so on and so forth. Um, but again, things of inhabiting, if you will, uh, for the lack of a better term. And then I'm going to draw flak for this. I know it's a, it's a bourgeois ideology. And then these ambivalences, the so-called ambivalences of individual thinkers, I deem to be expressions of a, uh, of a bourgeois critique of capitalist unevenness that cannot recognize the constitutive violence of primitive accumulation as belonging to capital. Um, liberal, because it conceives of capital as an essentially liberal uh, the, the social formation, and therefore when it, it, when, it, when it is confronted by slavery, by militarized trading, by territorial conquest, it can at best consign these violent, violent transformations to the prehistory of capital, after which, you know, life, liberty, property, and Bentham, as Marx sardonically put it, the supreme, but does not include these violent transformations in a theory of capital. Um, and that is something that. Uh, That that is also present in contemporary economic um, history that accounts for the histories of colonialism, but nonetheless cannot admit it into a theory of capitalism. So for Smith, for instance, and this is a sort of splendid expression of this, um, Smith discusses colonial slavery openly and excoriates it openly. But he explains slavery on psychological and moral grounds and not an economic um, grounds, that it's the love of domineering and tyrannizing. So in other words, classical political economy, as, as um, uh, elaborated by Smith, cannot admit slavery as a category of political economy. That is the language in which commerce and capital is expressed.
2: So the critique of it is, is one that is not based in the economic problematic that it presents.
1: Uh, that is right, in a sense. So the 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 the, um, the economy is constituted by political and legal power, so juridical political force. Like there's there's the the laws of capitalism are not just a movement of you know the, the profits, rents, and wages, but actually laws of capitalism. So uh, labor laws, property laws, these are the constitution, if you will, in the political sense of the constitution of the economic. But they cannot be accounted. Um, from within the language of economics. And so because they are, in in a sense, the constitutive of... So in other words, uh, this is something that I um, delved into in a a, a recent article that this is really not in the book, the theoretical stakes of the theoretical threads of the book that I've been exploring in a number of articles. And this one, um, the the latest one, came out in political theory. Um, So primitive accumulation is akin to constituent power in democratic theory or consti- constitutional theory in the sense that it brings into existence an order, a social order, not just a legal but a socio-legal order um, that cannot account for this constitutive force or constitutive moment um, by the norms and the practices that are internal to this constituted order itself. So, in that sense, um, this, the, the empire and the violence of empire to the extent that it is constitutive of global commerce and capital remains, in a sense, the constitutive outside of classical political economy, that it gives rise to the institutional forms and social practices around which liberal ideas about contract, contractual freedom, juridical equality, um, life, liberty, property, and so on and so forth can emerge, coagulate and, and, um, and solidify but these ideas themselves or these norms themselves cannot account for the historical violence, the constitutive or constituent of violence or force or gewalt, as you know, the German capacious um, start, that gives rise to their conditions of possibility. And it is that which I'm tracing in the liberal critics of empire. So in other words, what the two books try to accomplish together is to show that by looking at this problem from both sides of the normative divide, we can discern that there is a an ideological problem that is, for the lack of a better term, objective or structural or independent of the individual um, procl- uh, uh, moral commitments or, or or sensibilities of the thinkers under study. That that the, the the fact that both the liberal defenders and the liberal critics of empire um, hit this limit or had to grapple with this. Uh, the problem of the illiberalism of capitalism or the the, the violence of colonial capitalism suggests that uh, there was a, a, a problem that is that is uh, that cannot be derived from or reduced to the uh, the texts of political theory or political economy under study but requires um, imperial the the, the the contextualization of these uh of these texts of these ideas in a theory of the imperial context that is social, and then a social theory of the imperial context. Um, that is, we have to uh, compound intellectual history, if you will. And again, this is where I draw flack from um, intellectual historians of, of linguistic uh, contextualist bent. Um, we have to compound intellectual history as important context, context is, with a theory of the imperial context that is social in nature. And that is what I mean by the aspiration of the two books together um, to contribute towards a new social history of political thought that is imperial in scope. And by socialist of political thought, of course, I'm referring to um, a strand of interpretation that was uh, very controversially uh, inaugurated by C.B. McPherson and then expanded by Ellen Mason's Wood, Neil Wood, and David McNally, and has fallen out of favor after the broadsides that they've received, uh, um uh, volley after volley from um ling- linguistic um discur- sorry linguistic contextualist um school, you know, the, the so-called Cambridge school. And notwithstanding, you know, the, the insights of of that school and notwithstanding the fact that I work very closely with Cambridge School um linguistic contextualist um, re- uh, studies, uh, I do have the, uh, the 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 ambition, if you will, um, to to bring the the uh, the social back in, so to speak, but this time not in the narrowly English, British, or even European. Um, scope and that is what the social history of political thought has done. They've always focused on English capitalism, English working class, English enclosures, and so on and so forth. But um, widen the scope to uh, the, the colonial and global constitution of the social, uh, so to speak, in which to situate um, uh, political ideas.
2: So the the second project or the second book, which and they, they and they are essentially. In dialogue with one another, obviously, um, is is the second book completed? Um,
1: and if so,
2: when's it coming out? <laughs>
1: um, so no, it's not completed. Okay. It's it's it, it's uh, in progress. Um, mm-hmm. I have um, by and large finished the the drafts of um, the, the the Hume and slavery and Smith and settler colonialism chapters, and the second book also. Mirrors the uh, the structure of the first book in the sense that again labor, property, and exchange are at the center. Are the, the three hinges that connect anti-imperial critique to the histories of to the history of capitalism or colonial capitalism. Hence, human colonial slavery focus on labor. Smith and settler colonialism focuses on uh, property. And uh, as a third uh, chapter, I'm not entirely sure as I said. I'm still wading through um the utilitarian takes on empire because you know Bentham and, and and James Mill uh and their followers in the colonial reform movement have been critical of the old colonial system, so to speak, the Mercantilist system, um on the grounds that it was completely economically sterile if 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 uh if not destructive, that it was kind of an outdoor relief for unproductive aristocracies. And that um, the so-called trade, the jealousy of trade, was pointless because it was, you know, Ricardo's uh, theory, the theory of accumulation, and, in, and told them that um, capital created trade, but not the other way around. And I'm looking at the limits of that uh, argument: that we don't need trade, and therefore we don't need empire to expand our trade. Um, limits of that argument, with the begrudging admission that. Um, Yes, there was overproduction or overaccumulation in Britain in the early nineteenth century and settler colonies and a reform of the Indian economy is necessary to overcome that bottleneck, that that problem. Um so that's that's gonna be the third um chapter. That's gonna be the, the trade um chapter of the market exchange chapter. And the focus will be on mainly on India. And uh, let me just conclude with I mean that 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 description with um with something that I found um, in uh, Thomas Bloomington Macaulay's parliamentary speeches. Um, and that this this was just a moment of revelation, really. And that's really how, how I work. I just find something that strikes me and then and just follow it down the rabbit hole. Um, there the hat and turban debate in India, that whether there should be direct rule. This is the debate between Orientalists and the Anglicists, whether they should be um, direct British rule in India, British institutions, British language, British laws, or whether they should be in rule, that um, the, the, the British should rule through local customs, local laws, and institutions. In other words, whether the hat or the turban should rule. And um, Macaulay says, well, who cares if it's the hat or the turban that rules if the turban is made of British muslin? Um, so this is you know this writing in the 1830s. This is the period of of of, uh, of glut and 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 crisis over accumulation in Britain. So it's the political economy and a particular political economy of capitalist crisis in Britain that um, I find reflected or captured by a uh, pronouncement on how to make how to turn India into a society of produ- uh, consumers from a society of producers. And of course I can to link that links up with. The abolitionist debates that you know slave societies are actually societies of producers, not of consumers, because slaves cannot
2: Aye, consume; right. they don't have income.
1: likewise, India—we've been bleeding India dry. We've been extorting. We've been draining Indian wealth, and of course, doing that um, undermines any capacity on the part of this vast continent to buy English goods. And what we want is markets, and therefore, we have to institute reforms to transform India. From a society of producers into a society of consumers, but that requires pretty heavy um, legal and administrative reform and intervention in the Indian social fabric. So, anyways, that's kind of the other the, the dimension of the, uh, the 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 direction of the third uh, node or episode of this of the study. I waxed a little longer on this one because the first two uh, episodes are written, and the third one is is one I'm, one I'm thinking more. Um, systematically and, and, and out loud nowadays so you're in
2: the midst of it as it were
1: yeah yeah yeah
2: so thank you for talking to me about not only colonial capitalism and the dilemmas of liberalism but also the next book does it have a working title
1: it does it's called between commerce and empire um Capitalism and the Limits of Anti Imperial Critique sounds
2: great. Um, will you come back on the new books um, in political science podcast and talk about it once it comes out? I'd love. Great. To. Thank you so much for being with me today, Ulash.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Lily. I appreciate
2: it. I really, uh, I really recommend Colonial Capitalism and the Dilemmas of Liberalism by Ulash Injake. Injake? Um, which was published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. And I'm sure it can be picked up at all the usual places, as well as I'm sure at the Oxford University Press website. Any place else that you might suggest somebody pick up your book, Lush.
1: Um, your local bookshop, just place an order. Support local business.
2: Exactly. Um, thank you again for talking to me all the way from halfway around the world in Singapore.
1: Um, and... I appreciate
2: it. My pleasure. And, uh, and we will talk again.
1: Great. See you soon.